Okay, we should be uh, live. Hey everyone, Fraser here. Welcome to uh, this week's Open Space. This week I'm joined by Paul Geithner from NASA to talk about James Webb Space Telescope. You have been hammering me with questions about James Webb. We went and made an episode all about James Webb uh, which is done and we tried to put it live earlier today and it kind of um, it, it went a little over schedule is all I'm saying so we're uh, um, but it's it should be live within a couple of hours after we do this live interview so I had hoped that I would post the video post a bunch of questions or sorry post a bunch of interesting information that everybody would be able to digest that and have more questions we messed up I apologize in advance but I still think this is going to be an incredibly productive uh conversation so uh, Paul thanks for joining me oh you're welcome happy to be here so why don't you give people a bit of your background so they know who you are what you do sure well I'm the Deputy Project Manager Technical for the James Webb Space Telescope Project, which is run out of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Your cats. Uh, yeah, in Greenbelt, Maryland. And um, uh, so I'm part of the management team for the whole project. And uh, uh, I'm there's three different deputies to the project manager. And I'm the one that focuses on, on technical issues and, and verification. So, so specifically then, so you said, right, you're the deputy project manager, there's four of you. Um, and then there's the project manager, I guess, of the of the whole of the whole project right. that you guys report to. Um, right. And so as the technical lead for this, what specifically are, are you working on? Um, mainly resolution of technical issues because there's always something that's coming up even in this late stage of assembly and test and uh um i mean i'm not the chief engineer that's mike menzel he's our mission systems engineer but i'm i'm the the person in the management team that's that's focused on technical and we have another one that's focused on financial and another one who's who's sort of the uh the the, the overall deputy to the main project manager who's bill oaks and um but yeah, so I think I have the best job, frankly, because I get to, <laughs> I get to focus on um, on just the machine and you know the ground system that's going to operate it and getting it, um, you know, working with the people that are actually finishing putting all that together and um, making sure it's all going to work okay. And, and so for I mean, I guess if someone has a problem, what are the kinds of problems that they will bring to you? Um. Well. For example, I mean, the problems we've been having lately that have cost us some time have really had to do with uh, just the complexity and the first time nature of the of the sun shield part of the observatory. Um, you know, the five layer tennis court sized, um, uh, you know, membranes that are actuated by telescoping booms and cables uh, that provide the shade in the cold environment so that the telescope optics and the instruments can work and um it's just an incredibly complicated system first of its kind and there's always something going on so um yeah it's not so much people come to me with problems it's just the problems happen and yeah you know i work with the team of engineers that that address them i i'm working on another video as well uh, talking about this idea of doing in space telescope assembly for maybe telescopes mm -hmm. that'll come down the line yeah. and there was just some stunning numbers of things that need to happen 
when it gets deployed. And I forget the exact number. I, I can dig it up if I, if I need, but there's some like just like 40 plus um, events that have to happen at once. It just leaves the, the upper stage to to deploy itself. There's like more, more than 200 separate actuators, which are release mechanisms that need to... You can you run through yeah. some of those those numbers? Because sure, I mean, sure. There's um, there's well, as far as devices, there's 178 individual non-explosive release devices that hold the whole observatory together for launch. Because of course, it's it's so large that that it can't um, fit in the rocket in its deployed state and the state it's going to be used to operate. So we had to fold it up very compactly so that it will not only fit in the nose cone of the rocket, but can um, be structurally very solid, so it can handle the rigors of launch. And uh, so all these little devices, in, instead of explosive pyros that are sometimes used to separate things, um, these are all you know, non-explosive, low-shock devices, and um, there's 178 of them. 107 of those are associated with pinning the um, folded-up membranes of the sun shield together um, to be very compact and you know all of them have to work so as far as the number of things that happen man it depends on how you count but there's a lot of things that happen you know the deployments i've, I've got it here actually okay i've got my list here hold on it's uh um 20 different deployment events yeah uh 40 different structures yeah. um and 178 separate release mechanisms right yeah and there's yeah, like some serious origami going going on yes. that. And yes. so do you think that and, and you know, one of the things that I really kind of learned about this whole process is that it's like if they had given you a bigger launch fairing, if they had given you a more powerful rocket, you could have, you know, costs could have come down and timelines could have maybe have have become shorter because in fact it's the it's getting materials that are that lightweight and yet be able to be strong enough to handle all the parts of the of the process like it, you know that like you're at like at the maximum telescope that could possibly fit within a launch fairing of this size right five meter fairing yeah i mean your point's well taken um you know at some point though you can't build a bigger rocket because that becomes impractical and then we need to build it lightweight um, yet strong to, uh, even if it were large, to um, withstand launch. You know, if we build a, if we build a monolithic glass mirror, um, even if it's lightweighted quite a bit, like Hubble's main mirror was, you know, making it six and a half, eight, or more meters, you know, the problem grows geometrically with how you know, the strength required for something that big, and then have it survive. Um, and then just throw weight, the whole issue, well, it's got to be, you need a, an awfully powerful rocket to get it to, uh, to L2. It, it starts to become a runaway problem. So back to your, your point about, you know, eventually assembling telescopes in space, you know, if we want to have greater and greater resolution and sensitivity, you know, forecast weather on nearby exoplanets, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Something really extreme. I mean, eventually you're going to have to uh, this is my opinion. You're going to have to assemble, you know, send it up in pieces and assemble it in space. So, you know, is Webb the last of its kind where we build it all in one piece and, and test it all on one piece as best we can on the ground, fold it up, throw it in the space and unfold it? 
maybe, maybe not, you know, things like LUFAR and other future large space telescopes are, are trying to, you know, be a, be an evolutionary step, um, from web, still the same idea building it all in one piece. But yeah, if you want, if you want a hectare of <laughs> primary mirror in space, you're not going to, you're just never going to be able to build a big enough rocket for that. You eventually, at some point, there's a breaking point. You've got to build, build things in space. So we're not there yet, but it's in the future. Well, and it's not, I mean, it's not like this hasn't been done before. I mean, look at the international space station. I mean, it is, um, 30 plus launches all assembled by astronauts and, right. and now, um, robotic arms are doing things like soft capturing the dragon capsules and, and birthing them. So there's, I think a, it, as part of this presentation, and like I said, I don't want to give people too much of a preview, but that's sort of what's clearly in my head right now, a lot of the really interesting engineering challenges have been, have been worked through. And so you can kind of see that, that it, it does feel like James Webb is sort of like going to be the last of an era of the, the mm -hmm. folded telescopes. And then the next generation are going to be these monsters, yep. but they will be, they'll be like the enterprise, you know, constructed in space, flown in space, never had to land on earth. Right. Um, Right. So let's give people then an uh, sort of a status report on where James Webb as of November uh, 2019, in theory, we are 14 months. So I'm sure you know, to the minute but we are about 14 months <laughs> away from from the actual launch date uh, in in March 2021. Right, we, we are in final assembly and test we, we actually um, just in September became one piece, became an observatory. So, you know, it had, it had always been multiple pieces and things being assembled. And the last several years, we were in two major halves. We were in the spacecraft bus and sunshield half. Um, and we were in the, the optics and instrument half, the uh, telescope half, I'll call it, which is, you know, the, the, the payload, so to speak. And um, those two finally came together uh, recently. And that was a big milestone for us was getting those two together. Um, and yeah, we're now that we're an observatory, we, we have one more set of environmental tests to go through, which actually aren't as rigorous as the ones that the two big pieces and other sub pieces went through already. Um, since all that stuff went through, pretty good mechanical environments and went through thermal environments. Um, this last set of environments is basically just mechanical mm -hmm. and just to make sure the, um, the those final connections um, are sound and the workmanship of those is good. So, so we're, uh, but we do go through one more set of acoustics and sign vibe tests and, uh, and one more deployment. Um, of the sun shield or just the whole of the sun shield yeah um, partially of the optics um we won't be doing this secondary mirror support structure anymore for example we already had to run for record on that but um we are doing one more full deployment of the sun shield so and it's one of three full flight deployments on the ground of the sun shield you know the first one was before we put the sun shield and bus through its own um vibration and thermal vac environments. And the one we're just finishing now is the post set of those post environmental set of those. And, uh, soon we'll be, uh, we're making a few, um, minor repairs and tweaks to the, uh, 
to the sun shield itself right now as we're about to fold it all up and then put it through environments one last time and then unfold it one last time. And that last deployment, of course, has to be, has to go like, like it needs to go for everything to work in space. So, um, but yeah, that, that's, that's what we've got left is uh, finish a few, a few tweaks, um, fold it up, uh, put it through environments, which will, be similar to the levels that it'll see on flight as opposed to a few dB higher than that. And then do an unfold, check it out, fold it up one more time, ship it to the launch site in South America and then put it, uh, put it on the rocket and launch it. Yeah. Um, so, and right now, is, is it back at Goddard right now? Cause I know it was on the West coast. Is it back in? It's still on the West coast. So okay. The, the uh, Northrop Grumman plant in Redondo Beach in the LA basin, that's where the bus and sunshield were, were put together. So um, the telescope was assembled at Goddard and then sent to Texas for end-to-end um, uh, -end optical testing. You know, we, I know we've talked about this before, but we took a, a, a giant vacuum chamber left over, a relic of the Apollo era, and we refurbished it and installed all kinds of sophisticated optical test equipment in it. And we put the telescope minus the sun shield and the bus inside there. And we ran that chamber down to super cold temperatures. We got down as low as 11 Kelvin because the telescope itself, when it's in the shade, the sun shield will be run quite cold, mm -hmm. um, anywhere from 20 something to 50 something Kelvin. And um, we, we needed to run light all the way through the system and it's the, in the telescope in its deployed state and verify that that not only it worked, but we could phase the mirrors because, of course, we're going to launch it and we'll have to line all the mirrors remotely. So we did all that testing and um, and then we sent that to California to meet up with the SunShield and, and the um, bus assembly. And um, that was a little delayed from our plan several years ago, but we're, we're on track now. Um, but yeah, that, so everything's in California. It's all in one piece in a big clean room on Redondo Beach, California. And so then the next big step is it gets put into, you do these final set of tests and then it gets put in the, in the shipping container and it's going to go yeah. directly from Redondo down to South America or is it coming yes. back home first? We're going to, nope, go straight from there to South America. So we'll go by ship um, through the Panama Canal and right to the uh, receiving uh, dock that's on the Karoo River um, in French Guiana, that's the same place where a lot of other payloads and, and rocket bits come in to the, to the spaceport there. And uh, so we'll, we'll pull in there and we'll transfer to their facilities and we'll do our final red tag, green tag, so to speak. So things that come off and things that have to go on, um, we fuel the spacecraft. Um, we're fueled with hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide, and that's for mid-course corrections on the way out to L2 and also for years of uh, station keeping and momentum management and uh, major pointings. So we need fuel, but that fuel is some nasty stuff. It's yeah. standard standard spacecraft fuel. It's super poison. You know, it's hypergolic and it's really horrible stuff, very hazardous. So one of the last things we do is with the red tank, green tag, we fuel the spacecraft and then we actually transfer onto the, to the Ariane and a few last things before it's in, 
encapsulated in the fairing and then it rolls out to the pad and it launches. Yeah. And that's like a, almost, that's about a three month launch campaign to do all that. Right. Right. From, from like when you get it to South America, from when it actually takes off, you're looking at three months. Right. Yeah. Okay. All of those, all those activities. Are you going to be heading down to, to French Guiana to participate in that? Or are you going to be able yes, to? That's, that's the plan. I'll be, I'll be working with our lead, um, our integration and test lead, uh, Mark Voighton, um, and, and, um, just running the show down there with the uh, Arian Space and Ecent Kness folks. Yeah. Uh, and I'm right now. My my place is in uh, um, is down there for launch, and then immediately after, come back and go to the Space Telescope Science Institute where the Mission Control Center is. Yeah. Um, lot happens in the first few days right after first hours and days right after launch. And from how long from when it launches? will it take to actually then do its deployment? So how long is that journey out to L2? So the journey out to L2 is about a month. I think it's the 29th day after launch that we actually, nominally that we'll insert into um, this orbit about the L2 point. Um, most of the deployments will be done in the first uh, roughly two to three weeks. Um, the solar rake is the first thing that comes out and it's automatic and that's minutes after we separate from the, um, from the Arian second stage. I think powered flight is about 26 minutes and we'll separate and then with somewhere, I forget the exact timeline, but, um, it's only minutes after we separate from the second stage that, uh, you know, the solar ray comes out, we, 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 uh, we acquire the sun, um, we start making electricity so we can get off the battery. And then, um, and then, you know, we start, we start the major, geez, the sun shield deployments, the big pallets that kind of, to which the fun membranes are all pinned and surrounding the, the, uh, the optics for in the launch configuration, those fold down. It's about, two and a half days after launch. But in between there, we have a couple of very critical um, burns. Um, you know, one weird thing about web is uh, we can't point the wrong end at the sun, right? We, we have to keep uh, the optics not pointed at the sun. Um, so we've asked the Aryan folks to give us an underburn and we'll make up the, the last little bit of Delta B to get to L2 um, with onboard, uh, with our onboard scat thrusters. Um, if we got a, if we burned, got a too hot a burn from the uh, Arian, you know, the normal, what a normal spacecraft would do is like turn around 180 degrees and then thrust towards the sun. Well, we don't want to thrust towards the sun. We can only thrust away from the sun. Right. So, um, so yeah, so it's, so, like you can't for a moment let that those optics look anywhere near the sun. I mean, they're going to get a little bit of sun um, actually during the early phase of flight until we start deploying the sun shield. But uh, as long as it's not direct and for a long time, so we're going to be like in a barbecue roll and we're going to be at <laughs> shallow angles. And, um, uh, um, you know, the sunlight will mainly reflect off the mirrors, but the composite structure that hold them, the precision optical bench that holds all the mirrors together, you know, if that gets too hot, it'll 
the glue that holds it all together will soften and then it will all that line. I did that. I did that to a telescope. I was, uh, I was using a telescope. I was observing, um, a solar eclipse, but I was doing the projection method. right, Right. And so I had my telescope pointed through the window at the sun and I was sort of being really careful about it. And I was projecting this sun and I was watching the eclipse and then I left my telescope for a whole day and then it went through the whole day and the next day the sun came back through and burned out the optics and melted the glue and because I'd left it right I'm like oh and now the sun's moved away and so then we're done and then it came back around the next day and melted the inside of my telescope and and it was it 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 wasn't ever right again ouch yeah we're trying to avoid that yeah exactly yeah you just do not want that all right um as promised though I would love to get everyone's questions I know that a lot of people have a lot of questions and hopefully we can get through as many questions that both I have and and the the viewers have so um Greg Guthman asks, why did you not use Florida for, for launching James mm-hmm. Webb? Why is it going on an Arion rocket? Oh, that's a good question. So it's got an interesting story. So uh, when we were first putting the program together in the mid late nineties, um, we wanted international cooperation because you get kind of more, more bang for everybody's dollar doing that. And our, European partners, European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency, there are partners on web. They wanted to, they wanted to partner with us on web like they have with um, Europeans in particular, like they, like we're partners on Hubble. And on Hubble, um, and it'll be the same on web and, and a lot of other science missions, the, uh, the scientists compete for time on, the, on observing time. And it's a merit-based peer review process to, to gain time. But the deal um, from the Hubble days, which goes back to the 80s, uh, is that European scientists were, gu- were guaranteed 15% of the observing time, whether they won uh, less than 15% or more, at least they'd be guaranteed 15%. Um, turns out Europeans earn by merit something like 21% of the observing time on, on Hubble. So, uh, but they wanted the same guarantee for web time. So we said, okay, that's great. Um, but we need like 15% worth of value contribution. Uh, you know, it, so it's, it's in kind. And, um, so two of the four instruments are, there's kind of five instruments, but it's two and one on the guider. But anyway, Canada provides a science instrument that's part of the guider, um, instrument. And um, Europeans provide the uh, workhorse spectrometer, the near spec and the, the mid infrared instrument. And um, that's great. That's a lot of value, but uh, we're like, we need something else. They had offered, they had offered, well, you know, we've got this uh, spacecraft bus we've, we've developed for Herschel. Um, could use that. And we're like, yeah, but the, the, um, the interfaces are difficult and, and it runs into um, difficulties with uh what kind of design information you can regulations that say what kind of design information you can share with uh, foreign partners, even if they're your close allies. So that wasn't going to work because of the complexity and the number of interfaces with the spacecraft to everything else. And uh, obviously optics is kind of a strategic thing. So we couldn't go there. So, um, so we said, how about a rocket? You know, and at the time, at the time, this is about in the early two thousands, um, there wasn't a launch vehicle 
at that time that met the strict requirements for a, a flagship mission of Webb's class. You know, you want a very a reliable rocket with a long track record, proven track record of success. And the, uh, the Ariane 5 was the best thing at the time. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of value. So um, by throwing that into the mix, that, that gave, you know, that's how we got to the roughly 15%. And right. Europeans were gracious and, and agreed to uh, include that in the package. And so that's how we ended up on an Arian. And of course, Arians are flown out of the uh, uh, Guyana Space Center down in French Guiana, north, northern coast of South America. And that's why we're launching from there as opposed to on some other rocket. And so it's been many years, right, since we made that deal. But um, we designed around the environment and the interfaces that the Ariane provides, even though we're on a standard launch adapter ring size and things like that. Um, you can't just say, oh, well, I'm going to change from, you know, this rocket to that rocket at a late stage of, of development. So, uh, you know, we baked that into our program way back when as part of the European contribution. And that's why we're launching from South America, not Florida. It's right. part of the Europeans contribution to the mission. So we don't, we don't pay for it. The Europeans pay for it. Um, we can't, uh, regulations, you know, U.S. law and such that we can't pay the Europeans for stuff and they can't pay us for stuff in terms of the partnership. Um, so that that's valuable contribution right. from the Europeans. So it's yeah. trading. You you guys uh, worked out. They offered a, they offered to bring a rocket. Uh, and a bunch of science instruments and 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 the and NASA and Canada we chipped in and yeah uh, and, yeah. and the U.S. Yeah, I mean Canada. Geez, the guy the guider comes from Canada. It's the thing that points a telescope. That thing has to work, or, or yeah. we're not going to be pointing anything. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's great. It's a big international project, and um, um, yeah, it's all good. So that's how we ended up launching out there instead of Florida. Um, a question from Corey S. Is there any way to uh, store anything on JWST after it's deployed if SpaceX Starship is able to go out and do repairs in the future or retrieve it? So this is, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's just a version. But the question that we get a lot is, is there any, I mean, the, the repairs and upgrades that were done to Hubble were so wonderful. Yep. What, I mean, there are, I know there are no plans, but what capacity, what is possible? I'm sure somebody has done a back of the envelope um, idea yeah. for what it might take to be able to go out and, and I mean, not necessarily upgrade it, but at least give it more fuel to lengthen its yes. mission. Yes. So, um, I mean, it's a good question because I've worked on my first job in NASA was working on Hubble servicing. And so I appreciate what, Servicing is done for Hubble. Yeah. Um, my first job at NASA was working on the cor corrective optics for Hubble. So I, I worked on CoStar, which corrected for the actual instruments, but, and I worked on NICMOS. Um, so uh, yeah, web is hard to service, but we did think it because it's a cryogenic spacecraft. I mean, half of its face is the sun and is hot, but um, most of the mass of the observatory is running it you know, 40 Kelvin. So, um, servicing it in its operational condition is, you know, we, it's rather impractical, but that doesn't mean servicing is not, is 
is completely impossible. So one thing we one thing we did they do we have done and that you mentioned is we didn't preclude the ability for somebody in the future to go say put more fuel on it. The one thing that will limit Webb's life guaranteed is fuel. We need fuel is for station keeping and and on momentum management. And you know, Hubble doesn't have fuel, but it's in the Earth's it's in low Earth orbit within the Earth's magnetic field. So it it can react against the uh, the um, magnetic field of the Earth to do momentum dumps for its reaction wheels, which is how it points, like Webb, and um, uh, and it doesn't really have orbit maintenance. When when we had the shuttle, we used to give it a reboost every time. But you know, Hubble's in an orbit that's good for many years to come. So, but with Webb, we're way outside the Earth's magnetic field. We we have to use something to react. So we used reaction jets, and of course, L two is a metastable point. It's not a garbage collection point, so to speak, like L right, four, L4, L5, L5, yeah. So we need, we need fuel to maintain our orbit and, and, and for momentum management. And so it's the one thing that could limit our life. So we've made sure that web is a cooperative target for someone in the future, maybe with a robotic spacecraft to go out and acquire us and, um, be able to put fuel through our fill and drain valves and put more fuel on it. But Bars changing on instruments or working on the cold side. That's just right. never been a practical consideration. But there's two parts to it, right? There is the, as you say, there is the fuel for for maintaining, for station keeping at the L2 point. And there's mm -hmm. also the the helium coolant that's being used to bring the ah. the telescope down to its operating temperature for the for the mid-infrared stuff. Right. The mid-infrared detector has has a close, but that's a closed cycle um, cryocooler. So it's like your refrigerator home, only a lot more expensive. And but a it, lot but it does have a limited <laughs> lifespan, doesn't it? For the amount of no, time. no, theoretically, it's it's. Oh, really? It's, okay. Yeah, it's closed cycle. Um, it's it's like the compressor that runs your freezer and refrigerator in your house, except you know we're using helium for working fluid as opposed to a um, like a fluorocarbon or but, something. But like but there is like the the refuel valve and as you said the you know the in intake and output are on the exterior of the spacecraft and yeah. in theory a very careful very cold spacecraft could attempt to to give it some more operating fuel there's a place to clamp on yeah, if it, it needs to yeah the um um you know we have a standard um launch interface ring um, they come in standard sizes. We're one of those standard sizes. So a robot could go out, clamp onto the ring and, um, and then our drain and fill ports are, are, you know, those are known locations. And by the way, these are all on the bus, which is always in the sunshine. Right. So you're talking a, a warm bus, always in the sunshine. It's not a, uh, uh, we we're placing targets on blankets, um, that can be used so that uh, something that would acquire web would know its orientation. Um, right. So yeah, we're, we're making it, we're making it a cooperative target and, and we're providing all the information needed for somebody in the future who know how to basically unscrew the, uh, the caps, put fuel in and screw it back on. And, yeah. and it's not like that ring, is weightless. I mean, you had to account for that weight as part of the, and, and putting that ring on the spacecraft is per, perhaps <laughs> payload that might not have been something else. So it's, you know, it's, 
I mean, it's there anyway because we had that. That's how we attached to the uh, launch. That's how we attached the launch vehicle. Oh, I see. So it is the thing that you would be using for the for the Arion for the upper stage anyway. So you right. might as well right. So that is right. there and it's an interface so somebody else can can use it. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, that was the question. Yeah, there. we thought about servicing a long time ago. Um, Web's mission and architecture makes it really difficult. But the one thing that that you know the one thing that guarantees it will only last a finite amount of time is fuel and uh so we've made sure it's a cooperative target if somebody figures out a way to go out and stick more fuel on it um they, we we didn't preclude that as right. an option right. um nathaniel kinky asks a part of uh james webb have been stored for quite some time uh what is the jwst doing to combat reliability problems caused by long storage so Yes. Is that a problem? Um, the only, not really. Um, the, uh, the, the only thing that actually has been an issue has been, um, the battery. So the battery that we have for flight eventually will go, will 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 get too old. So we've been working a spare just in case. Um, but the one we, we have that we intend to fly is actually, uh, is good for our planned date and, and a good many months beyond. So I think we're okay, but yeah, it's, it's not so much age as it's, um, how many cycles you put things through while it's on the ground, um, either because of gravity or, or, you know, the moisture environment. So there, there are, there are all these budgets for, well, how many times can we, can we, uh, cycle a filter wheel on the ground or, or, um, run the cryocooler compressor at, you know, it's in the, in the condition things are in now, for example, there's things like that, that we don't want to fold and unfold the sunshield too many times. Um, so, but, but we need to unfold it and refold it enough times to know that it deploys. Uh, and that's just a wear issue. So, right. uh, yeah, there, um, geez, some of the instruments have been around waiting for seven years. So just that thought makes you nervous, but actually there's, there's really nothing. Um, it's, it's how many times you cycle things mechanically. Um, that's, that's the main concern. It's not just sitting around. Hasn't really been an issue. Um, I, I yeah. can imagine though, like as there are delays and if you're a developer, you know, and you're working on some part of it, like the, as you say, like the cryo cooler, or there's some part of the machine that you're working on, your instinct is going to be, I'm just going to run another, I've got a little time on my hands. I'm going to run another test. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to try and throw in some more features. I'm going to try to make this more reliable or more robust or whatever. But each time you're doing that, on the other hand, you are taking away from the total number of times that these things can be fired up and run yes and shut and, you off know, again you touch the thing it's a risk so so yeah um the thing was designed to be in space it's destined to be in space it wants to be in space we <laughs> we, we need to get it you know we need to get it into into space because that's where it's belong that's where it was designed to live so um um yeah i i guess the only other thing about hanging around that other not moving things is you know, there are dry film lubes on some bits and pieces and, you know, those, you know, 
you, you, you don't want to leave those sit in a given environment for very long. So yeah, there are cer certain issues to the age, but it's not as, it's, it's manageable. Right. We've, right. We've budgeted, we've budgeted everything. I mean, there's a budget for everything. So, so we, we know how long we've got and how many times we can yeah. run things before we're, we're bad and we're, we're good. We've got a lot of margin. So. Um, Glitch Walsh asks, uh, what will be the first target for James Webb? Does, has anyone decided on what that first target is or, or even for first light? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, that's not my department. Yep. It's reminding me of that old Tom Lehrer record. Boy, I'm really showing my age now. That's like, you know, how they go up is, but how they come down is not my department, says Werner from Brown. Anyway, there's a funny old record, but the, um, Yes. The short answer is yes. There is a uh, scientist, a team of scientists are figuring out right now what the early release observations are going to be. And certain programs are being selected. Um, exactly what it is um, and then what will show up in the New York Times first, for example, or something like that, I can't say. But but yeah, the, um, the first set of observations will basically be to showcase the observatories um, capability and potential and should be pretty mind-blowing I imagine so would that be a like something cosmological like looking at the oldest possible galaxy or would it be something yes. more like here's a planet orbiting another star or um, yes <laughs> so so you know Webb's got a broad range of yeah. themes it's got it's got early universe you know ancient galaxies first galaxies kind of theme it's got um it's got uh stellar evolution galaxy evolution theme it's got um you know exoplanets and um the uh conditions for life themes and so all of those will have uh all of those will be addressed in in a in a suite of early releases early set of observations um but me being project management team but not one of the scientists right. um you know i i yeah so I, I there's not a lot of details i i can remember nor can i give anyway if i did know them so right yes gonna be there's gonna be a, a whole suite of um early release observations that'll that'll demonstrate the whole you know across the themes that web is going to address scientifically and and showcases capabilities yeah i mean the as you said, like the, the capabilities are like, when we talk about those cool pictures coming from the Hubble space telescope, the ones where it saw a galaxy as it looked just 500 million years after the big bang, it was having to use a, an, a whole other galaxy cluster as a lens to be able to observe that more distant galaxy. James right. Webb will do this directly. But then James Webb is also going to be doing its version of the deep field where it's going yeah. to be able to see stuff that's maybe only 250 million years after the Big yep. Bang. That's the idea. We're going to look farther and deeper, try to see the, the first yeah. galaxies. And and I, I know that I know that part of the early release stuff involves gravitational lensing, as you mentioned. Um, that'll be part of the early, you know, cosmic dawn stuff in the early releases. Um, the uh, but yes. Yes, they'll, we'll, uh, we'll be seeing, because we're infrared, we'll be able to see higher redshifts. You know, part of, part of the, the primary reason Webb was even conceived that the year even before Hubble was launched was to, uh, was to be able to, to uh, see the era of 
you know, the first stars and galaxies. So. Yeah. I mean, I just like, like, I imagine it like right now, the kinds of galaxies that astronomers are able to observe are the ones that happen to be perfectly aligned in this way, while James Webb will just let astronomers look at whatever they choose, which is just a dramatic difference to go, yeah, we want to explore the entire universe at that at that distance and that and that age. So in doing research for my for my video on this on this subject, you know, there was a lot of the, you know, the 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 science goals of James Webb came out of the decadal survey, the one of the decadal surveys, I don't know, the 1991, um, the 2001, I guess the 2001. Yeah. And because of its budget and because of its timeline, it's almost like it's, it, it's gobbled up another generation of decadal surveys. And so the astronomers put this kind of infrared astronomy as their, as their primary objective. James Webb is there to answer those questions, but now the answers have come longer and later than than I think they had been they had been expecting. So what kind of, you know, do you think that had they known? I mean, now the dies cast, they're they don't really have a choice. They have to you have to now we're just a year and a bit away and and then their answers will will come. So so what and, and so a lot of that is is sad, a lot of downsides. But one really interesting upside that I'm that I've noticed is that the exoplanets, you know, the number of exoplanets when James Webb first launched was a handful or when it was first should have launched when it was first uh, envisioned, and then it would have had that 10 years of survival, and then it would have been then it would have been done. But now there's 4000. By the time it gets there, there will be 5000 6000 way more interesting targets for James Webb to look at. So are there some examples like that, that maybe the science has progressed, the questions have gotten more interesting, that maybe, in fact, this is a boon and not necessarily a, a you know, a huge sad delay? Um, I, I, yeah, I think you touched on it with the whole exoplanet theme, I guess, in 89, when the first conference was held that said, hey, we need a large aperture infrared telescope to follow Hubble, even though Hubble was a year away from launch. Um, you know, I, I don't think there were any exoplanets. Yeah, there weren't any. 93, 95 was the first. Yeah, sometime in the mid nineties was yeah. the first one, right? And, and then, um, uh, yeah. And then we've had Kepler and now TESS is operating. So we have all these targets identified, uh, rich targets for, for web to follow up on this. That was a whole area of science that, you know, what didn't exist when, when the web was conceived. And then I guess another one is I'm treading on thin ice here because I'm not a scientist. So I just, you know, neither am I. So, you know, I, I didn't, and I didn't stay at a holiday Inn express last night, but anyway, the, the, um, uh, you know, the ex dark energy was something that wasn't even found. Right. I mean, yep. um, uh, geez, uh, 98, yeah, ninety-eight, right? You had yeah. you had um, Adam Reese on one team, and you had Saul Perlmutter and another yep. team. You had these two teams, and they won Nobel prizes for this, right? So, discovering observationally that the rate of expansion of the universe is accelerating, uh, you know. So, I imagine Webb will will help shed light on what 96% of the universe is that we don't understand, right? Which is like 
three quarters dark energy and almost a quarter dark matter. Yeah. Right. Four percent is stuff stuff we're made out of. So uh, uh, that will be. I don't think scientists appreciated that at the time because they just didn't know, right? Yeah. So I, I've always thought that the greatest discoveries that Webb will make will be answers to questions that no one has thought to ask, even now, even yeah. after years have passed and it's, it was supposed to be launched many years ago, still isn't launched, but should be soon. And, you know, it, if anything, it's more of a, you would think it would be less of a relevant tool after the delay, but I think it's a more of a relevant tool um, because its capabilities are, are broad and are right in a sweet spot for addressing so many questions. Yeah. And, and that's, and I think that that's sort of what I was getting at is that with Hubble, it was designed to be upgraded. It was designed to be maintained. It was designed to be refueled and have its its gyros and um, reaction wheels uh, swapped out for, and just, you know, and so there was no real end date to when Hubble, the Hubble mission ends. You know, it goes for, you know, we're at um, 1990 till, you know, yes. we're closing in on 30 years now, right? Yeah. Um, and it'll be 30 years shortly when the, the co-star, when the actual instrument was, was upgraded and it was actually able to see clearly for the first right. time. And right. astronomers have pushed the capability of Hubble beyond anything they had ever expected and were right. able to make all these discoveries, the exoplanets, uh, dark uh, dark energy, and even helping to map out dark matter. But, but James Webb, with that 10-year lifespan you get this one moment where you you start the stopwatch and you go okay quick you got 10 years to science as hard as you can and then and then it and then it's over and so it's like if you could choose that 10 years right would it have been 10 years ago would it 15 years ago would it be would it be now would it be because yeah. Once I imagine the scientists would have said, gee, in 2010, we would have done the cycle ones through five, you know, yeah. uh, it would have been different than, than what they are now or what they'll be two years from now. Right. So, um, and of course the, the observations are, are solicited and chosen and like planned in one year cycles. So, so as, as the state of discovery progresses and, uh, what we, as we know what we don't know evolves. <laughs> um, yeah, the, sci the scientists will be able to uh, adjust. But yeah, there's a finite life, right? I mean, Hubble's original mission was, even with all the servicing and everything else, was planned for 10 years. And it's gotten these extensions because it's been such a powerful tool. It's had these senior reviews. And it's like, yeah, let's keep operating it. Let's keep uh, giving budget to operating it. And like you said, it's going to be 30 years in space come next April. Um, and uh, yeah, Webb. If you know, if we if we get a good burn from the Arian and we do our mid-course corrections at the right times in those first critical hours, um, and we get good performance, you know, that'll we we, we could um, have you know instead of say ten years of fuel after commissioning, maybe we can get fourteen or seventeen years of right. fuel if we get a good burn from the rocket and we get good. But of course, we have to budget for worst cases. But yeah, if we're if we're smart in those early days of the mission, um, and we get nominal things happening, uh, we can get 
some extra years that way. And then hopefully all the other stuff lasts a long time. You know, I'd love it if this thing were like uh, curiosity, right? And it just, you know, 90 day mission and it went for years. So. Oh, the, the, the spirit sorry, and opportunity. opportunity. Yeah. Opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Curiosity still working. Yeah. But yeah. Opportunity was the 90 spirit and opportunity were 90 day. Yeah. You know, required missions like our mission is five year requirement after six months of commissioning, but we'll have fuel for longer. And, you know, if we cosmic rays aren't too hard on us and other, the other environment of L2 isn't too tough and we're still working, we're still kicking. I imagine, and still productive observatory, I imagine that web will fare well in senior reviews and we'll, yeah, we'll getting used. But yeah, as, as, discoveries are made and priorities change that the scientists will be able to adapt with the uh, selection of what observations they want to make. And, and then when it does wrap up, like, I don't think for, for a while people won't have a, have the stomach to, or the priority to launch another sensitive infrared observatory that has the same kind of capability. Like, like James Webb is, is Spitzer plus plus right yeah spitzer's aperture was a fraction of just one of our 18 primary mirrors yeah yeah and like maybe james webb is the next generation on herschel right but but the what what is the replacement infrared instrument that comes after james webb i would be I would be amazed if someone has one on the on the books. I know there's there's like Habex and there's a couple of interesting ones for the next one, but I don't Origin Space Telescope. The Origin Space Telescope Louvoir. and Louvoir, yeah. Um, but Louvoir is is a is so that's going to be through uh, near IR, right? right? Right, right. And so you're not going to get that mid IR observatory anytime soon. So that yeah. window into the universe will then close down when James Webb does wrap up its mission and hopefully there'll be some kind of overlap, but it's also entirely possible that there will be other priorities. People will be working on other things. And then suddenly the, there will be no ability to see in that wavelength anymore to that kind of distance. So right. Right. it is interesting to me that it is this, it feels like this sprint, like the moment that it opens up and begins to work, people are going to be getting as much science as possible. And then it's going to, you know, and then it will, yep. it will be wrapped up. Yep. Yeah, true. Uh, so then assuming, you know, once it's out the door and it's, and it launches, where will you be putting your attention next? Do you figure, is that like up to NASA or do you have an oh. idea of what you'll work on after this? Me personally, <laughs> yeah. I, I do not know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I haven't thought that much about it. I've just been so focused on getting this marvelous machine built um and knowing it's going to work and then the commissioning is going to be going to be hairy you know that the mars guys like to talk about seven minutes of terror <laughs> yeah and you know and there's nothing they can do because mars is 20 or more light minutes away and everything they're seeing coming back is hey it's already happened you're just seeing what it's like when the signal finally comes back and it's all pre-programmed but you know our stuff is more like it's going to be a few weeks of, of, you know, high anxiety and with pers people in the loop, you know, we're going to be five, a, a few light seconds away. Um, and we're going to be commanding most of these, um, deployments and sure they're com stored command sequences, but there's, 
it's going to be very complicated. And if anything goes off nominal, you know, we're going to, have to be flexible. And so uh, a lot of the time we're doing right now um, on the op side are, you know, rehearsals. We're doing a lot of rehearsals of um, different stages of the early part of the mission. Um, and, you know, to, to get the team, you know, it's practice, right? Yep. Get the team uh, learning how to work, um, uh, learning how to handle contingencies um, on all kinds of contingencies. Yeah. So it reminds me a little of the movie Apollo 13, where they were trying to, um, you know, doing simulations, trying to figure out um, on the ground how they could do a return to Earth with the, with the, you know, the fuel they had, with the amount of battery power they had, because because their fuel cells were what they lost most of the fuel cells and they had very little power. It was like, how do we do this without burning the one circuit breaker we got left and <laughs> yeah. be able to maneuver? And they, they were practicing all this stuff on the ground. And, you know, it reminds me of like the stuff we're doing now where we're doing, we've just had our third early commissioning exercise, which focuses on just the first two and a half days of the mission. And um, things are really time critical then. And uh, we're, we're, we're practicing stuff like that. We're having more, um, this month and we have many, yeah. um, versals going between now and the mission. So that when the mission finally shows up, hopefully it's just like falling off a log. With, so so let me, have, let me adjust my, we can just, you know, we know what to do. So let, let me adjust my question then, um, of the yeah. next batch of telescopes, the, um, you know, with Louvoir, Habex, Origins, and Lynx, which were the next four that were uh, right. suggested by now. And obviously, you know, we don't know which ones are actually going to end up being built, but which of those have technical challenges that you <laughs> are fascinated and would love to be a part of, of helping to solve? Uh, the, I, well, they all have pretty, pretty daunting, exciting challenges. I, I, I helped out a little bit on red teams for origins and for Louvoir and, uh, the, the teams that worked on those, um, you know, it was really impressive the work they did, but boy, that the, the challenges are daunting. And for somebody like me, that's been involved in web for a long time and I'm really buried in the you know, the actual hands-on hardware, get it finished and launched part and everything I went through with the rest of the team on developing the technology and then actually making it real and the and real hardware that works and not just in lab, but is going to work in space. Um, you know, really, I really appreciate, I'm humbled by how hard this is. And, uh, so, you know, you read some of these things and it's like, oh yeah, well, we'll, we'll just cool this thing down to four Kelvin. No big deal. It's like, no, that's actually really hard. You know, <laughs> that last mile. Cool yeah. Yeah. Just cause we developed coolers that worked for, for the Miri instrument. Um, that wasn't easy. And so I, I know these things aren't, aren't, aren't going to be so hard for these next generation of observatories and they're going to be generational like web was, um, you know, size matters with telescopes and, you know, so building something big and then with new capabilities so that you can do new science, you know, you're pushing it, you're, you're exploding the envelope. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, it's, 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 it's daunting. I mean, the engineering, we're really pushing the, uh, we're advancing the state of the art in, in engineering in many fronts with these new observatories. So they will take 
a long time and a lot of work to uh, to manifest as real things that get launched into space. And, you know, I'm just, after my years on web, I'm, you know, humbled by what it takes to do that. So yeah, there, the challenges, you know, the coronography that some of these observatories want to do to actually try to image um, exoplanets around nearby stars. I mean, that, the stability requirements, um, it's just, you know, I can go on and on. There's so many technical challenges that, you know, uh, make some of what we've done on web look, look kind of tame at this point. <laughs> I mean, my favorite, I mean, my background is in, in technology as well. And like my, my favorites are just those problems where you, you've, initially you just think it's impossible and then and then your brain your brain starts to think of a couple of ways that you might try to take a crack at it and maybe if you were able to just and then you're hooked and then you're in right and then you you can't let it go and and you obsess about it and you you know you sculpt your potatoes out of it right so i think that 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 those are the kinds of of technology challenges that i i find really really fascinating i find you know after a while you just sort of keep mulling over in your head because you think there's a way to crack into that problem is just just give it enough time and and run through some things that aren't going to work. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, after you've gone through the ones that, that haven't worked. Well, Paul, I, we're reaching the end of our hour. I don't want to take any more of your time, but uh, but thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, if people want to keep track of of the status moment by moment, what is the best place to stay on top of everything that's that's